0: So week two of our series, unsalted. I thought the series was actually called Unsalted, uh, and so I created this whole, like, sermon on low-sodium living and stuff, I actually called it uh, Please Don't Pass the Salt, actually, but then I came last week and heard Chris, and I had to scramble to write a different sermon when I realized that it was unsolated, which has nothing to do with sodium, and isn't actually a word. Uh, we made that up, so... But the point, the point of this series is that it's so easy for many of us who live in the suburbs to live lives that are completely insulated from poverty and injustice in ways that most of the world can't. We can drive to work, we can drive to school and never see poverty and injustice. We can shop and go to school and find ways to avoid facing it in ways that most of the people in the world can't. For women who are sold into slavery, there is no insulation... From injustice. No illusions. For people of East Africa who experience famine, there is no insulation that protects them from those harsh realities. And for many of us, even in this country, who experience systemic injustice and crippling poverty, they can't insulate themselves from it. They can't just turn the channel and make it go away. But many of us can. And so the goal of this Unsulated Series is to help everyone who calls Emmanuel home to find ways of substantive ministry that touches and actually makes a difference in the lives of the poor and the marginalized. To move beyond, as Susan pointed out, the place of being insulated, to being introduced, and then having been introduced to the people, and more importantly, to the hearts of these people and the issues that affect them, we move to engaging in substantive ways. And then having engaged, we move to actually becoming an advocate for the poor and the powerless. And that is the heart of God. You see, throughout Scripture, God demonstrates a particular passion for the poor and the marginalized, the fragile, the widow, the orphan, the refugee, all people that have a special place in God's heart. And that God expects His followers to care for too. We're looking like today in the Old testament book of amos i invite you to turn there with me if you don't have a bible uh, we have bibles that we'd love to give you that are at the front and the back for you to take home and make your own in the book of amos the prophet amos goes before israel and outlines for them the ways in which they have turned away from god and from the heart of god and it's a bleak picture and he calls them she repents and starts off this way listen you people of israel listen to the funeral song i'm singing The virgin Israel has fallen never to rise again. She lies abandoned on the ground with no one to help her up. The funeral song I sing, the death song that I sing in mourning. It's this picture of God's chosen bride, the virgin Israel who's walked away from her groom and as a result is now beaten and battered and alone and cannot pick herself up. But then Amos offers hope. He says, it's not too late. Verse 4. Now this is what the Lord says to the family of Israel. Come back to me and live. It's not too late to turn this around. It's not too late to turn back to God, to run back to God and experience life, life the way that he intended it. Again, come back to me and live, says God. And the Amos goes through and he begins to outline all of the specific ways in which Israel has turned away. From God, he points out first their worship of other gods, but then the very next thing he points to is this issue of how Israel has responded to the poor and the powerless and the marginalized among them. Let's read verse 10. How you hate honest judges, how you despise people who tell the truth, speaking to Israel. You trample the poor, stealing their grain through taxes and unfair rent. Therefore, though you build beautiful stone houses, you'll never live in them. Though you plant lush vineyards, you'll never drink wine from them. For I know the vast number of your sins and the depths of your rebellion. Listen to these words. You oppress good people by taking bribes. And you deprive the poor of justice in their courts. These issues that he illustrates are primarily poverty and justice. And for Amos, and he would argue for Yahweh, these are not, these are inextricable The idea of poverty and justice cannot be divided. Amos is saying, Israel, you hate honest judges. Israel's court system was controlled by the wealthy. It was controlled by the powerful. And it depended on corrupt, bribed witnesses and judges in order to keep itself going. They weren't interested in the truth. They wanted whatever preserved their wealth. They weren't interested in the poor. They trampled the poor through heavy taxation and unfair living conditions. And then they used those same, very same poor people who lived in these horrible conditions to build themselves mansions, huge homes, and lush vineyards. And then worse, it says, you oppress good people by taking bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Amos is saying to them, as followers of God, your primary job is to build systems that protect the poor, that protect the vulnerable, that protect the orphan and the widow. But instead, you've built a system where you actually oppress the good people by bribing the bad people. You've built a system that doesn't protect the poor, it protects you. It protects your savings, your wealth, your comfort, your security. And it deprives the poor of justice in the courts. And then Amos goes on to say, but God is a God of justice and your sins won't go unnoticed. God will repay evil for evil. And all the while, Israel kept going to church, kept doing religion, kept singing the songs and having their festivals, acting as if God was on their side, confident that if they just keep singing the right songs, if they're just faithful to going to synagogue, that somehow they were being faithful religious followers. And to that, Yahweh says, I hate all your show and pretense. The hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies, I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. It's worth noting that it was God who had implemented these very traditions, these very ceremonies, these songs, these sacrifices. God had given them clear instruction that these were the ways in which he wanted to be worshipped. And now he's saying, I hate it. I hate what you've turned these things into. I hate the hypocrisy that's represented in these songs and these words and these festivals. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. God is saying, I don't want your worship songs and hymns. I won't even listen to it. This isn't how you show that you're my followers. This is key. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. God says you worship me with songs on Sundays and do all this religious stuff, but all of that is garbage. All of that is repulsive to me if it doesn't reflect lives that are actually lived for justice and righteousness and the things that I really value. And I think we have to at least ask the question, what bearing does that have on us, on the songs that we sing? The ways that our words reflect actual hearts. Because he seems to be suggesting that they're garbage unless they live, they reflect lives lived for justice. But how do we even do that? How do we live lives for justice in a world of, of poor and marginalized, in a world of the 24-hour news cycle? Right? It's just too much over the last several months. It feels like the news cycle has just ramped up every single day. There are shootings and there are earthquakes and there are floods and there are hurricanes and there are fires. And you hear these stories. You see these images just pouring into us like a fire hose and you respond. You have these emotions where you, you want to, you want to do something. You want to make something right. And then the next day you turn on the TV and there's another story. And the next day and, and the next day, And on top of that, there's these ongoing issues like like racial reconciliation and the environment and the education system and, and all these things that weigh on us on a daily basis that just feel like they're too much. And at the end of the day, you just end up feeling exhausted, burned out, emotionally spent, guarded about ever wanting to step into messy situations again and somehow even guilty for not doing more. And so we turn the channel. We retreat back into our insulated lives to escape the problems that just seem too big for us. And even our retreat becomes a place of, of shame and of guilt and of feeling disappointment in ourselves and in the systems. Guilt and resignation. Is that—is that what God wants? Is that what God is calling Israel to? Is that what Jesus Christ is calling us to as his followers, as his disciples of Jesus? Is that a picture of the life that he's calling them back to live? We think not. Chris... Last week mentioned, sort of in passing, that over the last 10 years, we've built these 10 continuums that have been very helpful, and we're still perfecting them. We're still finding the exact words, but but basically, they help us understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to live lives. Our goal is not to make a bigger church. Our goal is not to be the coolest church. That's why I (laughs) preach. Our goal is not to be the most relevant church. Our goal is to make disciples of Jesus Christ and to make an ever-increasing number of disciples of Jesus Christ so that more people can become more like Christ in an authentic community. And these continuums that are up on the screen, if we could bring them back up, are meant to give us a guide, a picture of what that can look like lived out. They're a measurement, a tool, a roadmap for what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And part of the beauty of these continuums is they acknowledge that all of these problems are too big. That we need each other. That none of us can do this on our own. There's no such thing as a lone wolf disciple of Jesus. Our invitation at ECC is experience God with us. And when we say that, we don't mean so come for an hour and sing some songs and listen to a talk and therefore we've experienced God. It's meant to be a comprehensive approach to life in everything that we do, we're saying the way that we experience God together goes beyond this. It's through these specific activities and experiences we will discover God. Our invitation to experience God, therefore, is you know discover with us, connect with us, reach out with us, serve with us, and in doing that, we together experience who God is. We encourage each other to that, and we invite others to experience the justice. Of God with us, the hope of God, the, the reconciliation of God, the very character of God in this world. We continue the continuum. Part of what I love about this particular reach out continuum is that it also illustrates that exposure simply isn't enough. Being introduced is crucial, but it's not enough. I've been on so many missions trips. I've been to so many places in the world where I've seen firsthand, where I've touched poverty, where I've seen abject poverty. And in that moment, when you're standing face to face and you're smelling it and you're feeling it and you're hearing it and you're seeing it, you want your life to change. You feel like I I will never go back to living the life that I've lived. I'm different now. And then we go back. And over the next weeks and months, the rawness fades the initial shock dulls, the pain numbs, the emotional responses that I had in that moment, the, the, no, the initial responses start to calm and the experience fades into memory. And when it does, a little callus forms, making me that much more likely to not even feel it the next time. But that's not a failure, I think, of mission strips. That's not a failure of the continuum. It actually illustrates why the continuum is so important. Because we can't stay simply at discover. We can't stay simply at introduced. We have to be willing to be introduced, but to be, and to be willing to have the insulation pulled back and touch the wire and feel the pain and feel the shock, we have to. But it's not enough. We have to continue the continuum. We can't stay at introduced and do nothing about it. Because we don't stay. These continuums, this, this idea of growing and being transformed into the likeness of Christ, it's an uphill climb. And any time you stop climbing, you slip back. It's like when I stop exercising. I don't maintain that. I fall back. The same principle applies here. And it's, so at each step of the continuum, we're faced with a choice. We can go forward or we can slide back. And if we choose to not move forward on the continuums, it's not a choice to stay put. It's a choice toward apathy. It's a choice toward insulating ourselves from the pain. And every time we allow ourselves to go backward, we become a little bit more insulated, a little bit more calloused, a little bit more desensitized. So, what does it look like to be engaged in ways that are healthy? It's not simple, it's messy. We talked about this a little bit last week. Last week, Chris introduced us to this book, Toxic Charity. Uh, In it, the author um, illustrates and and outlines how responding from a place of emotion, uh, of a place of having a heartbreak, responding from that sort of a place of just doing something, wanting to do something to make a difference, oftentimes ends up doing more damage than good. No matter how well-intentioned, when relief-giving, for instance, goes on and on and on and on, it becomes dependency and actually disables people from rising above the situation. Story after story of how well-intentioned but unexamined generosity ends up hurting both the giver and the recipient. Food relief, for instance, sent to Haiti uh, in in response actually ended up in many ways crippling the local agricultural economy. Why would anyone buy rice if there are bags of it for free? And so why would anyone farm rice? We sent shoes in many relief situations and it actually ended up destroying local businesses that were creating clothing and textiles and shoes. It's well-intentioned. But it ends up doing more damage than good. And not only is their industry destroyed, but their purpose, their dignity, their reason for getting up in the morning and trying is gone. So they're hurt, but in in a real way, we're hurt as well. Because we, as the givers in that situation, in that story, as the relatively rich givers, end up getting to check our box, right? That we did something good, we made a difference, we contributed to the poor. It's well-intentioned and tragic. And we won't have to think about it until next Christmas. And we can return to being insulated, satisfied that we've done our part. It's a, it's a good book. Um, and I would highly recommend it. Uh, it's a voice that we don't often hear in the evangelical church. But I'll tell you what, it messed me up a little bit. Uh, it's a tough read. And it says things that aren't easy to hear, frankly. Um, and, and oftentimes the voice of the author comes off very, you could very easily interpret it as cynical. Like there's just everybody's doing this wrong and it's not doing any good. And I think that's one of the ways that we are often tempted to engage. That's your first fill-in, if you're filling in your notes. We often engage as cynics. It's easy to start feeling, well, nobody's doing this right and we're doing more damage than good and the problems are just too big. And to become cynical... And then we choose to to disengage. And in choosing cynicism, we sort of re-insulate ourselves from the issues. Cynicism doesn't move us along the continuums, even if our observations are correct. A hopeless situation doesn't need cynics. It needs hope. Cynicism insulates, but hope restores I think another way that, that we sometimes respond, that we engage in these things, is, and it's related, is that we respond, we engage as critics of the situation. We criticize the way that everyone else is engaging. We criticize white privilege. We criticize uh, poor for not having better family systems or work ethic. We criticize churches for giving in irresponsible ways. And it's not that, that some of those criticisms aren't well-founded. White privilege is a real thing. Broken family systems that go back generations and perpetuate poverty and justice are real issues. Well-intentioned but poorly thought-out philanthropy has done a lot of damage over the last several decades. And we can't perpetuate any of those systems going forward. And yet, coming in and simply criticizing doesn't actually do anything to accomplish the real issues either. It doesn't move us along the continuums towards transformation Either. In fact, in real ways, when we choose to engage as a critic, that in and of itself is a way of insulating ourselves from having to actually deal. Critics insulate, but learners listen. What if we came in as learners, as listeners? What if we asked questions like, how can I better understand the voices that are different than my own whose experiences and histories are different than my own. In what ways has my place in life perhaps limited my ability to see the realities of others? It doesn't invalidate your experience, but it asks you to address the question, is it possible that my life has made it difficult to understand the lives of others? And that's not switching sides. That's like, that's living in the messy middle, which frankly is where we're called to live most of the time, I think, as followers of Christ. But I don't see a lot of that happening among followers of Christ. What if rather than fighting those titles when they're put on us, what if we leaned into them and asked how we could learn and grow and move along the continuum and maybe even take people with us in that continuum growth? If we're willing to lean in and ask the tough questions of ourselves, I think we insulate ourselves sometimes by thinking that this is something that only happens overseas or this is something that only happens in the inner city. But the truth is, most of us touch it all the time. I'm sure everyone in the room is familiar with the current controversy around the NFL Uh, And the well-publicized protests of players and the league's responses and the coaches and the huge backlash from viewers. And it's just taken over the news and social media these last few weeks. And before you think that I'm taking a side, I'm not. In fact, I would argue that it it is in taking a side that sometimes we actually get sidelined. It is in taking a side that we can contribute inadvertently to the problems and not to the solution Taking a side is a major part of the problem. Even if you're right, you lose. We all do. When we take a side on these sorts of issues, we insulate ourselves and others, and we become contributors to the problem. The NFL thing has become a circus, right? I mean, it is all shouting matches. And what's most tragic is that the real issues at hand are simply not even being discussed anymore. Those have all been lost in the din of the argument. And whatever side wins this, it won't be the side of justice. It won't be the side of reconciliation. It won't be the side of unity or peace. Because those aren't even the conversations we're having anymore. How will we instead engage in substantive ways? Not just trivial ways. Not just Facebook posts and... and Substantive ways. (laughs) Self-editing. In substantive ways that actually move the ball forward towards justice and peace and reconciliation. Even if you're right, you're wrong, if it only causes us more division. Taking a side is always dangerous. I want to qualify that, though, and say that I think sometimes it's clear that throughout Scripture, God does actually choose a side. God does take sides. In fact, you can fact check me on this as Chris likes to say, I recently heard an awesome sermon where the speaker said these words. You see, throughout scripture, God demonstrates a particular passion for the poor and the marginalized, for the poor, the fragile, the widow, the orphan, the refugees, all people that have a special place in God's heart, and that God expects his followers to care about them too. Wise and handsome. Throughout Scripture, we see a God who's on the side of the poor, the stranger, the prisoner, the orphan. God has chosen to, per, to portray himself as opposing the proud, the powerful, the wealthy. When their pride and their power and their wealth get in the way of his mission in this world. So if we're going to pick a side, let's, let's make sure we're picking the side that God is on. The side of those who are on the margins that they would receive justice and comfort and development and support and love. And that we as his followers like Israel before us are the primary means through which God tends to accomplish his mission in this world. God doesn't choose a tactical side or a strategy side or a political side. He's on the side of justice. He's on the side of people. He's on the side of his kingdom and his fame and his way of living to be a reality in this world, and he's invited us to be at work in this world, making that a reality. And that brings us to our third C in your fill-ins. We can choose to engage as co-laborers. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing a debate over which the Christians of Corinth were taking sides and dividing and yelling and fighting over. And he says to them, stop fighting and dividing over this stuff. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers. God is at work in this world, and He's called us to be His co workers, co workers with each other and co workers with Him, to not go out alone but to go out together to work with Him as equal but differently resourced co workers, to work with each other as equal but differently resourced co-workers each of us has our own gifts our own strengths and perhaps most importantly to work with the least of these as equal but differently resourced co-workers and that's good news because we need everyone we can get to encourage and to push and to grow and sustain and we need god when, when we respond out of this place of guilt or emotion, when we respond out of our own effort, our own desire to make a difference in the world, it's so easy for us to burn out. But what if we responded to something that wasn't guilt, that wasn't shame, that wasn't emotion? It was an invitation to experience God, where God is. Where God is working to be a part of that. Our invitation to you and your invitation to the world is experience God with us. Henry Blackaby, the author of Experiencing God, wrote these words, Watch to see where God is working and join him in his work. So what would that look like at ECC, here at Emmanuel? How how do we not just all go off from a series of like this, all charged up and emotionally and you know, big commitments and we're full of emotion and fervor and, and then we do a million different things until the emotions run out and we burn out and we all end up being a little bit more cynical, a little bit more critical, and a little bit more insulated than when we started. Well, I think there's lots of ways that ACC has figured this out over the years and we're continuing to explore. I want to invite a couple of friends up, Becca and Diana, to come up and to tell us just a little bit about how they are inviting us into experiencing God with them. Deanna Houck has been involved with Arrive Ministries. Many of you probably know those Refugee Life Ministries or World Relief Minnesota. Uh, and most recently, she's gotten involved in a branch that's called Somali Adult Literacy Training, or SALT. I knew SALT would come up <laughs> somewhere in that talk. Uh, and their vision is sharing Jesus with our Somali neighbors through literacy and friendship. Let's welcome Diana. Thank you. So tell us just a little bit about like how you found out about SALT and, and how you got involved and what that's been like for you.
1: Yeah, that's a funny story. Um, about five years ago... Um, uh, we're going to a different church, and they had a refugee life ministry. And I had a two-year-old and an infant, so I was like, "Let's, yeah, let's add another thing. Let's let's do more." So um, I signed up to be on their email uh, list and um, got all my volunteer application done and sent it off to Arrive Ministries. And um, and then I forgot about it because. <laughs> They forgot to contact me. (laughs) And so I, uh, yeah, uh, you know, I have too much to do anyways. And God's timing is always better than mine. So um, I fast forward to this past February. I got a call from the volunteer coordinator at Arrive. And she said, are you still interested in volunteering? And I was like, yeah, I've been waiting. (laughs) And um, she was like, yeah, well, you're inactive in our database as a volunteer. But um, we could really use you with salt. And so she explained to me what it was, and I was like, yeah, can I do it with my family? She's like, yeah, do it. So um, she said a a bill would be contacting me soon, and so I waited some more, and not a week went by, and I got an email from the listserv, from the email listing from the refugee ministry from my former church, and it was the same bill. And he was asking if there was anybody out there that would be willing to tutor a Mother, a Somali mother, and her nine children. And so I was like, okay, well, let's check it out. And it was, um, it, he was having trouble filling this spot because uh, most of the tutors were um, in Woodbury and um, this mother lived outside of there. And so I checked to see where she was located, and it was actually 15 minutes from my house. And so I was like, all right, I have no idea what I'm doing,
0: but. Let's, Had you done tutoring stuff do at all? I mean, did you have training in this? No. <laughs> do, you, uh, do you speak Somali? <laughs> no, not
1: at all. And that's the beauty of it is that... Um,
0: Somali language.
1: I didn't need to know anything and grew and grew as I continued volunteering. So.
0: All right. Awesome. So week in and week out, you're doing this. Look, this is a every week thing. What is that? How does that rhythm work with your family? And, and what are the highs and lows kind of of that for you?
1: Yeah, it's not easy. I mean, we have three kids now, so it's not. I don't really have more time, right? Um, But it's something that, you know, we can do as a family. Um, My oldest two have come with to play with the kids. They're um, almost six and almost four, and it gives us an opportunity to have discussions on the way home um, about why we do this and what we believe and why we believe the things that we do and um, it's really beautiful to see how they are seeing and connecting with people that are different from them and loving on them and knowing that this is important. Um, It's hard every week to get there. I mean, I always have a project I'm working on or doing, and, you know, I'm dragging my feet, but then once I'm there, you have the most amazing conversations. Um, One of the words that Nasero had in her workbook one week was the word grace. So I got to explain grace to her, and I watched her write it down in the definition in her notebook because she wanted to remember it, which is incredible. Um, So there's lots of cool conversations that I don't normally have that I get to have. You
0: mentioned one that, like, she literally brought up the subject of, like, where do you go when you die? Or something like that. Yeah,
1: yeah, and we got to talk about what happens when, when people die. And she shared what she believes, and I was able to share what we believe and share the story of my grandpa dying and seeing Jesus. So speaking the name of Jesus in a Muslim home um, was really cool.
0: Oh, that's very cool. That's very cool. So for those, I mean, SALT has locations all over the North Metro that people are getting involved in. For someone for whom they could see themselves maybe in that, what would, what would your advice be to them?
1: just do it. I mean, it's not going to be perfect right away and it's not going to maybe work out right away, but at least you're moving forward. Um, and God will use that imperfect obedience to,
0: for his kingdom
1: and to change hearts, including yours. I mean, I think that's the biggest thing is mm. it changes my heart, right?
0: Yeah. It changes your perspective. It's a voice that's different than your own, a story in history that's different than your own. I, I, I share this story, um, because it's just such a great illustration of how it's a journey. Diana was introduced five years ago um, and then sort of reintroduced and, and took that step of going from introduced to actually choosing to engage in ways that are substantive, that are actually helping this woman, this family, to integrate into our culture. She didn't get caught up in the debates about what refugee and the politics and the blah, 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 blah. She's helping contribute to their life and doing it in the name of Jesus. And then even moving from there, from engaged to, in some ways, actually literally advocating, getting up here in front of us, which is a scary thing and Mm -hmm. and advocating on their behalf. So it's, it's a great illustration of that. Can I add something that um,
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I thought you guys wrote this sermon for me (laughs) because I could see that progression immediately. I could see, I think there was one point Chris was talking about being, you know, being that person that goes in to, like, save those people, right? And that's how I totally started. I was like, oh, they're, you know, living in poverty. I'm going to save them. My kids have toys they don't need. And um, and in having her be the woman I tutor, and now she's my friend. I mean, she's definitely my friend. And we're sharing birthday parties together and Thanksgivings together. And um, it's really beautiful how... That process. And that friendship may have never
0: formed if you just waited for it to happen in your normal life. (laughs) Never. (laughs) That's very cool. That's very cool. And she didn't have to move to Somalia to do it. That's that's amazing. Um, Becca Backman is our director of outreach. And she has been putting together and coordinating this big outreach event that we're going to do as a church together on October 28th, Saturday, just a couple weeks from now. And we are doing that in collaboration with Union Gospel Mission uh, in St. Paul, and our hope is that hundreds of us, as many of us as we got to go to the movie, which is amazing, um, that, that a bunch of us would be involved in part of that day. Uh, why, why Union Gospel Mission? What's the story there?
2: So you've already heard the word dignity today. Um, I think that's really key. Same with what Deanna is talking about and understanding that transformation happens within us as well. Um, So Union Gospel Mission's mission is to restore dignity through transforming communities by addressing homelessness, poverty, and addiction. So it's a very holistic ministry, and they are offering us as a whole body to come together and um, be introduced to the issues that are at hand. So on the 28th, they're allowing us to come join their work and be introduced to what they do as well as helping introduce Um, those in need to their services as well.
0: Okay, so what what does that day, what does that actually look like in practical terms?
2: Yeah, our first priority is to fill um, the volunteer positions for our Thanksgiving Day meal registration. And what that is, is um, something that Union Gospel Mission does every year. They do a few different registration days, and we get to be a part of this one. And ultimately end up serving over 50,000 people for Thanksgiving Day meals uh, in the Twin Cities alone. So it's really incredible to be a part of it. People come and they can register to come back Thanksgiving week and receive a meal. Um, And the way that this is helpful and is something that is developmental is that this introduces these people to the resources that Union Gospel Mission has. So just as we get to be introduced to what Union Gospel Mission is doing, these people get to be introduced to the other resources available to them. So that's that's the first need. And what happens there, if you volunteer there, you could be a parking attendant. You could actually be doing the registrations. You could be managing lines. You could be keeping people um, who are impatient happy somehow. (laughs) Bring your smiles and your hospitality. Or you could be helping with the kids' table. There's a kids' activity table that will be helping to keep the the kids who are um, squirrely in line with their parents or our squirrely children who are with us. Um, busy. So that's the first opportunity. The second opportunity is to serve a restaurant-style meal to um, at the men's campus. So this would be served to the men who are in the resident who are residents in the programs at Union Gospel Mission, dealing with um, the addiction and um, poverty issues, and also to the homeless people who are coming in from the streets and and having a meal. So typically they would have a cafe-style, you know, cafeteria-style uh, lunch, but we get to, you know step it up a notch and make it like a restaurant and just enjoy um, treating them with with more dignity again. So that would entail uh, the setup and uh, serving lunch and eating with them and then cleanup. And then lastly, if we fill those positions, we will be um, doing some grounds work at Gospel Hills Camp, which most of you know is right across Highway 96, and just doing cleanup and that sort of thing.
0: Okay. So is the vision for ECC that somehow like, UGM is not going to be our, our big new thing and, and we'd send people there and that's the primary way that we do ministry or what, how does that work?
2: Uh, no, it's not. We love, I like, I really love what they do. They do a lot of developmental work that is really beautiful in the name of Jesus. And I really um, love that. I would love to see some of you get invested in them regularly, build relationship and make that a routine part of your life. But as I sit next to somebody who's obviously doing something very different and just as beautiful. I um my desire is to see each of you find find your thing. Find your thing that works with your life, um that you can make relational. Particularly um look at the needs around you in your own community. They're there and if you need help finding them, I can I can help you. I can help you find them. And just be thinking about like what what it means to have intentional routine relational service built into your life. Um because when we do that as a community, that's when we'll see transformation. When, when we're each doing our part and we're looking at our neighbors at our schools, at our um, the things that are just right around you, that's, that's where we're going to find transformation. Because suddenly I have developed a relationship. I see these people in the store. I see them when I'm walking my dog. I, I see them at school. And guess what? The relationship continues to grow and becomes invitational suddenly asking him to come to church isn't a big deal because we just do life together or asking him to come to our Christmas Eve service or join a small church and eventually earning the right to share Jesus with them. That's really what it's all about. And if we miss that, then then we're missing something big.
0: So Chris last week in his, in his talk talked about the fact that when he was working at Maurice Savick center, you know, he lived in the midst of the poverty, but every day he went on a run and he was like a mile and a half from these huge homes on Lake of the Isles. And, and that was a great illustration, but the truth is, I think that's true for probably most of us in the room at some level. I mean, I live in a wonderful home in New Brighton, and there there is poverty and first... I, within, I mean, and that's true for all of us in this space. I think that helps to illustrate that.
2: Yeah, it absolutely does. So yeah, the service day is really just a way, um, hopefully to pique your interest into what it would look like to serve regularly. And if you want to register for that, you can actually do it right now by taking the Connect card out of your bulletin. And it's October 28th. And if you just write on your Connect card your name, and maybe the number of adults and the ages of the children that we'll be coming with. You can even write your preference for what you'd like to do for serving. You could write Thanksgiving for the meal registration. You could write um, restaurant if you would like to serve at the restaurant, or you could write grounds. And we'll try as best we can to honor what you would like to do by also remembering what's you know most
0: Yep. Which highest I've, highest I've included that in the sermon notes page as well. The details are mm-hmm. at the bottom of.
2: Yep. And what... you, you can just drop that in the mailbox if you fill that out today. Otherwise, feel free to email me.
0: Awesome. Thank you. The heart of God uh, is so clearly demonstrated in Amos and in Hosea and in Micah and in, in so many books of the Bible it is for the poor and the, and the powerless. And that we as his followers mm-hmm. would engage. His invitation to us is come back. Make this a priority. Live the life that I would have for you. Not a life of shame and guilt and exhaustion, but a life of working alongside of God, seeing him do miraculous things in this world. That's our invitation. We we are desperately over. And so I'm now going to close this with prayer, if that's okay. And I can do that because I'm the worship guy who normally gets ripped off. So we're not going to do the song because we're just desperately over. I apologize. It was really good, though. It was really good. (laughs) Let let me pray for us. God, thank you um, for a chance to gather in this amazing place, for the resources that you've equipped us with as a church and as individuals. For the fact that you've put us in this place in history where the 24-hour news cycle seems to paint such a bleak picture, and yet, God, you are so much bigger than that. Thank you for the privilege that it is to be your people and to work on your behalf, but not just on your behalf, in your power alongside of you. God, please make that a reality in our lives. For the ways that we have even inadvertently allowed ourselves just to remain insulated, the ways in which we've turned back to our own comforts and our own lives, God, for the first world problems that are so consuming, we repent. Store in us. Give us your heart. We ask you in the name of Jesus. Amen.